Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June 22nd, 2022. The news from Afghanistan is not good. Uh, there was a thousand people killed today in an earthquake. Uh, every street you go, according to the BBC, you hear mourning. Um, the quake struck 28 miles southwest of the provincial capital of Kost. Uh, this, of course, is not the first earthquake, either geographical or metaphorical, to hit Afghanistan. We're all very familiar with a series of political events, earthquakes, which have traumatized the country. The original Soviet invasion in 1979, and then, of course, the American invasion in 2001, which was a consequence of the Al-Qaeda September 11th attacks in Washington, D.C. and New York. Al-Qaeda has, whilst it wasn't an, an, an Afghan organization, has, of course, had an enormously tragic influence um, on, uh, on Afghanistan. Uh, even the killing of Osama bin Laden, which took place actually as it happened on the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, also had a big impact on Pakistan, uh, not just on Pakistan, but on Afghanistan. We're talking Osama bin Laden and Afghanistan today with my guest Neni Lahoud, who is the author of a remarkable new book, The Bin Laden Papers, uh, which goes over much of the the material that was found after the um, the assassination or killing, whatever word you want to use, uh, of Osama bin Laden uh, in Abbottabad uh, on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And uh, Nelly is joining me from New York. Yeah. Nelly, uh, remarkable accomplishment. You poured through these materials uh, in this book. Um, which was a result of, uh, of the assassination, the Bin Laden papers. Tell me a little bit about what you did and how you accomplished this, this remarkably uh, scholarly achievement in putting these papers together. Well, thank you for uh, hosting me, Andrew. I'm delighted to be with you. Um, as you noted, the book is based on the materials that were recovered during the Special Operations Forces raid that killed bin Laden. And um, during, during the raid, they managed to find electronics and computers on the second floor. And um, the intelligence agencies went through them for what is called actionable intelligence. And following that, they declassified them. Now, the declassification occurred over several years, but the biggest declassification occurred in November 2017. This is when the CIA declassified everything that's going to be declassified, full stop. And, um, you know, based on, on what, what they declassified, there's thousands, a massive volume of files, including text files, video files, um, audio files. I must have clicked on thousands of files before I determined that the text files are going to be the most important. That, in, in a sense, I was I was looking for Al-Qaeda's internal communications. And so with the help of two research assistants, we went through all the text files. Um, we're talking nearly about 97,000 files. And 
we, and as I had suspected, there is about 6,000 Arabic pages of Al-Qaeda's internal communications that, that was included in those, um, in those text files. And uh, you, you might want to consider these to be Al-Qaeda's closely guarded secrets. And so it was remarkable that we have, uh, that we have these, these communications. And um, as you said, my book is based, is based on, these, on these letters. And it, um, it uses these letters to chronicle Al-Qaeda's history post 9-11. Yeah, it's a remarkable achievement. Um, I've just finished The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11, written by Garrett Graff, who was actually on the show recently talking about his new book on Watergate. And it, it struck me the remarkable impact of 9-11. Is this still bin Laden's major legacy, in your view, given your access to his papers, the fact that he pulled off, for better or worse, 9-11? Well, in the eyes of the world, this certainly is bin Laden's legacy. But what the letters reveal that it was also a big miscalculation on his part, because um, this, what he called a victory, um, ended up shattering his organization. And the letters uh, reveal that soon after 9-11, more precisely, soon after Operation Enduring Freedom was launched, um, which was the US-led invasion of Afghanistan, um, Al-Qaeda was shattered. The, the, Pakistan, the, the, the Taliban regime collapsed rapidly. And around December 6th or December 7th, um, it, it, the, the, the defeat was complete. And well, but presumably, uh, Nelly, and I, and I know this is a rather gruesome thing to say, but had bin Laden been given the option of pulling off 9-11 and destroying Al-Qaeda, he would have chosen that, wouldn't he? Um, well, I mean, it depends on, on, on how you, you want to approach this. Bin Laden had a political objective and his political objective was not met. His political objective was to deliver what he calls um, in his letters a decisive blow he wanted to attack the United States so that the people, the American people, would take to the streets, would replicate the um, anti-Vietnam War protest to uh, put pressure on their governments to withdraw from, from uh, uh, to withdraw military forces from uh, Muslim-majority states. Um, and in the opposite occurred. Uh, you know, it led to the invasion to Afghanistan, uh, on Afghanistan, then followed by uh, the invasion of Iraq. So, looking at it through that lens, this was um, this was this was a catastrophic success for Bin Laden. It was a pyrrhic victory, not not the victory that he had in mind. Yeah, although the idea that um, that nine eleven would have resulted in Americans coming onto the street to support Bin Laden and his objectives. Um, I mean, you talk about that as if that's a real, realistic objective. Was he thinking that? Does that reflect somebody who had any grasp of reality or certainly of American reality? Because that sounds just absurd to me. Well, you're absolutely right on that. Uh, however, this is the objective that bin Laden had in mind. And that is, that is actually 
the the sort of person that we get to know through the letters. Um, it, it is confounding that he thought that this is something that he could pull off. But there have been uh, nearly many, many men with the aspirations of, of a bin Laden. Uh, wannabe revolutionaries, people intent on overthrowing great powers, of striking against great powers. Most of them die in complete obscurity. Most of them are utter failures in terms at least of their dastardly ambitions. I mean, for better or worse, Bin Laden, in contrast to so many, um, shall we call them, I don't know, closet or, or underground terrorist revolutionaries, actually pulled off what he tried to do. So, so we have to give him, and again, I use this word carefully, we have to give him some credit, don't we? I'm not I'm not diminishing the impact of 9-11. Absolutely. It is, after all, the largest uh, uh, foreign attack on, on, on U.S. soil. So there, there's no doubt about it. Um, I'm just assessing the accomplishment of bin Laden on the basis of his political objectives. This was not somebody who um, uh, was was doing it just for the sake of killing Americans. He had a political objective. And his political objective is to help fellow Muslims. Rid, to, he wanted, he wanted to um, rid um, Muslim-majority states from the autocratic regimes that, in his mind, are supported by, uh, uh, by the United States and, and other European countries. In his own mind, um, Al-Qaeda and other jihadi groups can actually defeat these autocratic regimes, if um, uh, uh, if they get to fight them on a level playing field, the only uh, reason why the jihadis can't take on these regimes is because these regimes are being supported by U.S. military bases and European powers. Um, so, in this respect, he's not he's not really being um, he's not too far off from right. He's certainly not far. I mean, had it had it not been for Al-Qaeda and 9-11, um, there would have been no American invasion of, of Iraq. Um, Assad would probably still be in power in Syria. So the whole Middle East has been shaped, maybe as you say, and, and you wrote a wonderful piece on this about the, the unexpected consequences of, of, of bin Laden. But the whole of the Middle East uh, post 9-11 is a consequence of, of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, isn't it? It's a consequence of their miscalculations. And, and, and again, um, you know, the letters, I don't want to diminish who bin Laden was. And here, this is somebody who um, was, you know, somebody who believed in his cause. He sacrificed his fortune for the cause in which he believed in. Um, this is somebody who was a remarkable planner in terms of the, the, the small details of the attacks that he wanted to that he was planning and so on. But it, when it came to international relations, um, he was not well read. And what was more confounding, particularly for me, in terms of having been studying this group for a very long time and being immersed in his own writings and his own reflections and his own analysis, what was confounding for me is that he didn't realize the limits of terrorism. What bin Laden wanted to do by ridding these autocratic regimes, he wanted to uh, um, to reestablish the the ummah or the global community of Muslims that was once united by uh, a common political authority, and he he lacked a basic understanding of international relations, 
of the powers of the state, of the limits of terrorism. So that was very confounding. And it wasn't just about 9-11. His objective remained the same even towards the end. Al-Qaeda, as I said earlier, was shattered in the aftermath of 9-11. The group was unable to mount any international terrorism after that. And by 2010, we find bin Laden writing to his associates in North Waziristan, who were hiding there, and telling them that Al-Qaeda would come to an end unless we change our strategy. And the strategy that he was dividing uh, in, in 2010 was to achieve what he calls a balance of terror with the United States. Again, he wanted to do what the 9-11 failed to do. And this time, um, he, he wanted to affect the income of every American citizen. He wanted to destroy 30% of American economy, of the American economy, by sinking the largest oil tankers um, that, uh, uh, that, that the United States, that were, that were heading towards the United States. And he had made his, his, he had done his homework on that, on that basis. There's about 730 of these oil tankers worldwide. Each of one, each one of these oil tankers would carry about 2.2 million um, barrels of crude oil. And he wanted to, um, he was planning several attacks, simultaneous attacks that would sink many oil tankers. Now, thankfully, uh, uh, his plans, uh, uh, this, this plans did not, did not uh, happen, thanks in large part to, uh, uh, to the Abu Tabad raid and the operative who was tasked with carrying out these attacks was, was captured soon after the raid. Now, perhaps it, he may not have been able to pull it off, but he made, he made remarkable plans. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, he certainly was not a man who lacked ambition. Um, Nelly, tell me about Al-Qaeda pre-9-11. I mean, how significant an organization was it? Was it just the figment of bin Laden's imagination? Was it a highly sophisticated network of terrorists? Was it simply financed by a, a wealthy Saudi family? How would you describe pre-9-11 uh, Al-Qaeda? Well, we also have some internal documents back from, from that period. The Afghan uh, militant scene was littered with jihadi groups. And Al-Qaeda distinguished itself by being disciplined, by uh, having a, a, a chain of command, um, by being based on meritocracy, by putting a great deal of emphasis on secrecy amongst its members. So it's a very selective organization. Though Al-Qaeda was welcoming of many, many jihadis from around the world to train in its training camps, it was very selective when it came to um, membership in, in the group. Well, what would be the historical analogy? The more you tell me about them, the more they sound like the Bolsheviks and perhaps bin Laden like Lenin in, in, in terms of there being this underground movement of many different groups intent on destroying the international system, but only one group actually pulled it off. Well, you know, there's, there's, I, I, I think that the comparisons are going to be, I, I don't want to stretch, I don't want to stretch the comparisons here, because I think the first attack that Al-Qaeda was able to carry out, and it was a significant attack, 
was the 1998 East Africa bombings. This is these are the attacks that targeted um, uh, American embassies, and um, and this is this is what put Al Qaeda on the map, and not just in the jihadi landscape, but also in the eyes of the United States. And this is when the Bin Laden threat came to be um, came to grab the attention of people in in intelligence agencies in in the United States. So it was it was a significant threat. It was a disciplined group. And Al Qaeda didn't just stop with the 1998 East Africa bombings. It followed it with in 2000 with the USS Cole. And we know this from the letters. And here again, we find, uh, including some of the letters that were recovered from Abu Tabad, we find that there was a great deal of degree of consultation between Al Qaeda and other jihadi groups about launching these international terrorist attacks, including with the Afghan Taliban. Um, now, uh, uh, though there was consultation, the operational aspect of these attacks were highly secretive and only Al-Qaeda could know about them. And not everybody in Al-Qaeda could know about these attacks. So it, it, was, a, it was a disciplined group and a very, um, as I said, a group that is, that is based on meritocracy. Um, and the funding was from bin Laden, certainly. He put considerable part of his fortune into funding al-Qaeda. But there, was, uh, there were others also. Uh, were yeah, I mean, the more you, different parts of, right. the more parts you of talk the about it, the more remarkable achievement it was. As I said, I've just been reading The Only Plane in the Sky, which Graf interviews everybody from Condoleezza Rice to George Bush. And what she suggests in the book is after the attack, the penny dropped in these people's mind that it it was an al-Qaeda act, or an act of war by al-Qaeda. How seriously did, and, and I'm not sure if you get this from the, the papers, how seriously did the Americans take al-Qaeda pre-9-11? And was bin Laden aware? Did he have any intelligence of internal American uh, intelligence? Um he was under well there was in in 2000 at some point in in 2000 he uh, he was being interviewed occasionally by american journalists and he mentions after a specific event in afghanistan that somehow he was under the impression that the american tried to reach out to him um, indirectly to say well, will you leave us alone and, uh, you know, we'll have a deal with you. And purportedly, he let it be known that this is not just about Al-Qaeda, it's about the entire Ummah, the global community of Muslims. Therefore, he was not willing to compromise. Now, uh, you know, what the American government thought of bin Laden before 9-11 is, is a subject that others are better placed to comment on this than me. What I can say from the papers, though, is the um, U.S. government overestimated al-Qaeda post-9-11. And this is really what the letters reveal. Um, yeah, for it a wasn't decade, surprising, though, given, given the scale and impact of the 9-11 uh, terrorism. I mean, it, it's this bizarre thing where a small group pulled off this remarkable operation. What is it? You, what, one of the subtitles of your book, um, the Bin Laden Papers, is is how the 
Abbottabad raid revealed the truth about al-Qaeda, its leader, and his family. You begin the book with a family tree, a complicated family tree of the bin Ladens, a, a wealthy Saudi family. What does it tell us about the family and the links between al-Qaeda? And this is, again, a matter of some controversy between al-Qaeda and the Saudi regime. Well, uh, here the letters make it clear that al-Qaeda, particularly bin Laden, was very hostile toward the um, uh, uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, he wanted to have the top leaders of uh, of Saudi Arabia assassinated. So, uh, you know, we know from from other writings by Steve Cole, for instance, that um, you know that that bin Laden was no longer, um, you know, that he had to leave Saudi Arabia because because of his uh, criticism of the Saudi government. So these these issues we've known about them long before um, long before uh, um, the Abu Tabad raid, but. The letters make it really, really clear that uh, that Al Qaeda was very hostile towards Saudi Arabia, and we find that in the aftermath of 9/11, the Saudi authorities ended up making, you know, having all these uh, rounding up many uh, many people who were sympathetic with Al Qaeda or with Jihad broadly, and created uh, many political prisons in in the kingdom. And we know about this because there were a few people in Saudi Arabia who managed to communicate um, through letters with one of Al Qaeda's top leaders, who was in North Waziristan. Um, and, and we know from these letters how uh, uh, the Saudi regime was going after jihadis in the kingdom. How, to what extent did he split the bin Laden family? As I said, some we know that the family was very wealthy and powerful within Saudi Arabia. Did he take some of the family with him? Were there a lot of loyal family members who became part of Al-Qaeda? Was it essentially a family operation in the beginning, a kind of family startup? Uh, no, not, not with the bin Laden family. There is, there is a letter um, that was dated in 2007 uh, from bin Laden to his uh, brother Bakr, who oversees the bin Laden group in Saudi Arabia. Now, according to researchers um, and to, to public information available, the bin Laden family had disowned bin Laden back in the 1990s when he was criticizing, um, when he was criticizing the Saudi regime. Now, in that letter, uh, bin Laden is writing to his brother hoping that his brother's family could help him arrange the release of bin Laden's own family that was detained in Iran. Um, from that letter, we don't sense that the brothers had been in communications with one another. Um, it is, so it's clear that, that they were not corresponding because bin Laden starts the, the letter by saying it's been a long time since, since uh, I've, I've written to you due to security reasons and so on. Um, and he's also critical of his brother for not doing enough to support the jihadis in, in Iraq. Um, and, but it's, it's not really clear whether there were, whether there was any animosity between the two. Um, but, but it is, there is, there's absolutely no smoking gun from that letter that you could, that you could sense. Um, clearly his, his brother had not been, 
um, in a position to support bin Laden. That is clear from uh, from the available materials, and there is nothing in the letters that, that suggests that his brother had been supporting him in any way. One area that your book, and again, I don't mean to put words into your mouth, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but you seem to be suggesting in, in, in the bin Laden papers uh, that he got the idea of 9-11 from uh, a man called Gamil Batuti, who was an Egyptian air pilot who brought a, a plane down in October 1999, still a matter of great controversy. Is there some truth to that, that he was inspired by uh, Batuti's uh, suicidal bringing down of this Egyptian air flight in, in 1999 to pull off 9-11 or at least get the idea of 9-11? Absolutely. This is actually the the sort of uh, sheet of paper that you just showed at the moment. This is Bin Laden's own handwriting, and um, it is titled The Birth of the Idea of 11 September. And here in those two couple of paragraphs, Bin Laden writes that the idea came to him um, when he heard the news of the Egyptian air flight that was, that was piloted by Al-Bakuti. And when he saw that and, and it transpired later on that Al-Batuti had vengeful motives against his employer. Um, but when, upon hearing the news, Bin Laden turned to the people with him in the same room and said, well, why didn't he fly into one of these financial towers? Clearly, um, he thought that, you know, why didn't he put his vengeance into a political statement? And he goes on in the second paragraph to explain, this is how the idea of 9-11 was developed in my head and this is when we began the planning um so clearly this was the idea that inspired bin laden about flying planes into buildings this is where it came from remarkable remarkable uh, uncovering uh bin laden of course has entered popular consciousness he's almost become a meme lots of interest in the man himself lots of debates for example in england some people have suggested that osama bin laden was a big football fan a, an Arsenal fan, a North London club. What did your reading uh, of the papers reveal about the man himself? Did he have a private life? Was he passionate about Arsenal Football Club or his family or his wife's? Well, about I, I can't comment on the Arsenal Football Club, but uh, but there's uh, it, it's a little bit disorienting getting to know Bin Laden as the family man. We get to know quite a lot about family life in the compound. We discover that particularly his third wife, Siham, and their two daughters, Mariam and Sumeya, were really Bin Laden's anchor. Um, they seem to have co-authored, particularly the daughters, they co-authored most of the public statements that we've heard Bin Laden deliver over the years. Um, uh, we find uh, that you know nine of the 17 people in the compound during the raid were actually children between the ages of two and 11 or 12. Um, Bin Laden apparently um, would read stories to them in the evening. Um, he would give them prizes uh, after they recited poetry. Um, so there is um, there's a, there's a, a different picture, uh, an unexpected picture of Bin Laden, the family man that emerges out of, out of the letters. Um, yeah, the, the, the wives and daughters uh, quite surprised me, the role they played. In the, what in would the you have expected? Why were you surprised? You didn't it, expect him to be a family man? Well, you know, in hindsight, I, I, I shouldn't have been surprised. 
you know, that's uh, in, in, in reality, I shouldn't have been surprised. Um, but it was, it was impressive to see that the household, the Bin Laden household was very cohesive. They tried to afford the children in the household a, a normal life in a very abnormal setting. Um, and I say this because the Bin Ladens went to great length to uh, evade the authorities. The reason why we have these letters is because they didn't have internet at home and they didn't have a telephone. So all of Bin Laden's communications with his associates who were hiding in North Waziristan were done through these, these letters. These letters were being typed at home mostly um, and they were being saved on SIM cards and um, were transmitted through a network of, of couriers. The, the operation was, was impenetrable almost. Again, it's a remarkable, I mean, whatever one thinks of the man uh, and, and his dastardly acts, remarkable achievement, remarkably well organized for a small group to evade a superpower for what, 10 years almost? No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And, and frankly, if he didn't have a cohesive domestic life, um, we would have found him much earlier, I guess. So, um, so yes, no, it is, it is quite remarkable. Um, Nelly, what about the, your, your papers in terms of understanding the broader politics of Al-Qaeda and its impact? I know your papers reveal some stuff about al-Zarqawi, who is another um, jihadist who has had an impact on the jihadi movement. What, 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 what does this tell us about al-Zarqawi and, and his relation with bin Laden and his significance? Well, you know, here now we know that in 2004, when uh, al-Zarqawi's group merged with al-Qaeda, it was al-Zarqawi who was the most powerful jihadi leader at the time. Al-Qaeda at that time had been shattered and al-Zarqawi wanted the brand. Now, he was clearly interested in merging with al-Qaeda. He referred to bin Laden as the father and he wanted to please him. Um, but clearly, Zarqawi, despite his ruthless sectarianism, there was also more politics to Zarqawi than what I had assumed before. Um, and, and here we find quite a lot about what was happening with the Shiite militants in Iraq, which were themselves, you know, in the, in the aftermath of uh, the 2003 war, the militant landscape in 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 Iraq uh, proliferated, and Zarqawi was one of many jihadi groups and one of many militants. Some of the other ruthless groups were also Shia militant groups. Some of them were supported what was, by Iran. Um, and again, I, I apologize if some of these questions are rather vulgar, but was um, uh, Bin Laden was a Sunni Muslim. Did did you discover more about his faith and this this complicated relationship between Sunni and Shia Islam? Did that shape Al Qaeda in any way, or, or is that something that uh, Western writers and observers have, have, have misunderstood? I don't want to diminish the role of religion here because because Bin Laden was informed by religion and and religion was uh, was something that that uh, 
uh, that grounded him. Having said that, uh, his political objectives were strictly geopolitical. Yes, religion drove him, but the political objectives were geopolitical. As I said earlier, he wanted to be able to bring back, uh, to reunite the Ummah, the global community of Muslims under one common uh, political authority. There's nothing in the letters that made me um, kind of feel repulsed by any level of extremism. On the contrary, some of the um, some of the religious beliefs that uh, that motivated him are ones that are actually quite laudable uh, in terms of um, you know he would he would for instance stress the importance of uh, uh, being faithful to one's oath, uh, not not lying after making a commitment. Uh, he wanted to help the plight of fellow Muslims. He wanted to ameliorate uh, uh, their their well-being. So I didn't I didn't get the sense that this is somebody who woke up in the morning and he thought, you know, I need to kill a few yeah, people I mean, here. Yeah, I of, of the great man about him. It'd be interesting. We'll, we'll end on this note about how he will be remembered in history. But I just want to touch on Iran as well. Um, back in 2020, again, according to the New York Times, Al-Qaeda's quote-unquote number two was killed in Iran. Did, did, do the papers uncover much of any relationship at all between bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and Iran? Iran, of course, being the center of the Shia world. Um, and as, as you talked earlier, um, bin Laden wanting to reunite Shia and Sunni Muslim, Islam certainly probably wouldn't have looked to Iran for that. No, in fact, uh, the uh, what the letters make it really clear is again Al Qaeda's hostility towards Iran, and more so, Iran had detained Al Qaeda's senior leaders and their families when they crossed from Afghanistan when they fled Afghanistan in at the end of two thousand one, and crossed illegally into Iran. Um, they they were detained in Iran, including they detained also his second wife their son, Hamza, and six of his children by his first wife, as well as several Al-Qaeda stop leaders. We know quite a lot about their dire situation in Iran because at some point the situation was so bad in detention that one of, that one of bin Laden's sons, um, uh, Saad, ended up escaping detention. He took the risk and escaped detention and he made it to North Waziristan and upon arrival there, he wrote this 15-page letter to his father detailing the miserable conditions um, that they had been enduring in Iranian uh, uh, detention. So also the letters yeah, it's, make it's it absolutely clear. Stuff, Nelly. What about the idea of um, bin Laden and, and his Arab identity? Of course, there's a long history of complicated, often tense, hostile relations between the Arab world and uh, the Persian world. Did you find anything in the papers to manifest any element of Arabic identity or nationalism? Does he think of himself as an Arab? Uh, well, of course, I mean, Arabic is his language. And of course, the Arab world is part of the, the Ummah, the, the global community of Muslims. But uh, and, and of course, he's at ease with his own Arab identity. He's very well, but, but we see him speaking about the Afghans as being part of the same Ummah. He's speaking about the Pakistanis in the same lands. He speaks about various other uh, uh, ethnicities and, and, and nationalities, whether in 
whether in Africa, whether in, in India, whether we in, in different parts of the world. So uh, as he was committed. He escaped he, his, his origins then. He escaped his language of birth, his identity, but he didn't escape his religion. That defined him. Finally, um, finally Nelly, it's fascinating stuff. Um, in 50 or 100 years, I'm certainly not going to be around. I hope you are. But how is Bin Laden isn't going to be around? He's not around now. How, how are we going to remember this guy? Uh, you know, Napoleon is now remembered as a as a hero. Many of these figures who have shaped history have much more complex legacies. Even someone like Gavrilo Princip, who caused the First World War, which shaped the entire 20th century, he is now viewed in a much more ambivalent sense. How, how do you think? future historians are going to remember this man, uh, Osama bin Laden? Well, for all the reasons that you said earlier, uh, bin Laden was impressive in the sense that he did change the world, but not in the manner that he wanted. He dominated world politics for longer than a decade. So we can't escape that part of history. I do hope, though, that now that we have, we know quite a lot more about bin Laden and his organization, we can actually cut him down to size as well. He wasn't as impressive um, as, as we thought that he was. Uh, on some issues, we don't want to deny him his place in history. Um, but some of that has to do with his planning. Others has to do with world powers inflating his, um, uh, uh, inflating his, his standing in the world. This is somebody who was moving world politics at a time when he was confined to his compound and really overseeing a shattered group. So, you know, he was not as impressive as we thought he was, but yeah, I mean, some the of more the blame has to be him, on, on he, the rest of us who, was an, right. who were analyzing him. The more you talk about him, the more he, he appears to be an Arsenal fan who who exaggerated his own significance. Um, uh, Nelly, congratulations again on the book. It's a wonderful achievement. I quite quite how you did it. You're still alive, having gone through all those papers. The Bin Laden papers, how the Abbottabad raid revealed the truth about Al-Qaeda, its leader and its family. Congratulations on that. Um, anything else we should be reading? Uh, you know, we've done so many books on the Middle East. One of the books that I loved was, and uh, one of the conversations I loved was with the Lebanese-based analyst, uh, Kim Khattas, Black Wave. Are there other books about the Middle East that you would encourage people to read to get a, a more sophisticated understanding of, of, of the enormously important, turbulent and tragic history of the Middle East over the last 50 or 100 years? Um, well, the Kim Khattas book is, is excellent. It's one of the books that I've uh, read recently. I'm, I'm not reading anything on the Middle East at the moment. My, the, the You're book probably that sick of it, right? You've had enough. I, 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 to, to some extent, it, it's, it's a, it's a bit like that. I'm reading, I'm reading um, a brilliant book uh, called "We the Corporations" by um, Adam Winkler. It's a, it's a history of, it's, it's sort of a history of, of the United States, but it's sort of instead of looking at the founding fathers, but looking at the founding corporations of the United States and the role of corporations, the good, the bad, and the ugly roles that corporations have played in the history of, of the United States. So this is a, it's a fascinating, and it's the, the author has a great command of, um, of history and constitutional, uh, uh, constitutional law and really puts non-specialists 
at ease like me at ease so it's a brilliant book i recommend um i recommend about the middle east uh, uh, perhaps a, a work of fiction it's a little bit old uh, by the egyptian novelist yusuf zaydan it's called the arab i read it in arabic anabati the, the english i believe it's translated called the nabataeans and um, we get to it's it's set in the seventh early seventh century um soon after the emergence of islam and we get to go through that period through the lens of a coptic woman mary who marries into the nabataean tribe and she has to travel from egypt to uh jordan and we get to um learn about the emerging religious beliefs and she happens to marry somebody whom she was not physically attracted to but she falls in love not physically but um in the mind of her brother-in-law who is an abatean prophet and um his his views are very different from those um that are around including the views of islam so he's somebody who's unique and uh, it's a, it's a terrifically written book it's uh, it's it's a, it's a beautiful historical novel thank you so much nelly you